This is the Legal Tea with B podcast brought to you by me, Blessing Makosha Park, also known as the Chic Legal Geek. Follow the podcast online at Legal Tea with B and keep hashtag Legal Tea in all of your tweets so that we can read them out in the next episode. Hi, Aji. Hi. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Why are you speaking like that? I don't know. I have no idea. I think it's because it's you and I'm very nervous. Okay, fine. Um, I was thinking that it would be a good start to the episode if you could introduce yourself and sort of what your legal career has looked like and currently looks like and what you are up to. So, hey, my name is Achi Ayorande. Um, I am a lawyer. I'm a creative and some other things as well. Social entrepreneur, designer. Um, in terms of what my legal career looks like and what it looks, how it's looked so f- up until now, um, so I trained at a firm called Norton Rose. Um, I then qualified at another firm called Ashurst, where I worked as a finance lawyer in derivatives. Um, along the way, I started to do some things for startups and small businesses. Um, and for the last like eighteen months, I've been doing that exclusively on a freelance basis whilst working on other things as well um and you i wanted i thought it would be interesting if you could tell people the sort of names of your different ventures and organizations that you run yeah so in terms of the things that i refer to as things that i do or things i've been building um i have a clothing brand called mia london um, which I run with a business partner. Um, I'm the co-founder of a startup called MI Marketplace. And the other main thing that I do that is like law-related, um, I'm the co-chair of an organization called The Law Collective. Um, we essentially help to support black lawyers um, and help to connect black students trying to get into the law with those black lawyers. Amazing. So um, you're, So the reason I wanted to bring you on to this episode is not just because of your commercial legal experience, but it's the fact that when it comes to like pop culture and hip-hop culture and all the stuff that's going on on the TL, you are very active. You are someone that I can definitely always see talking about the, what's relevant and what's um, going on. And I wanted to ask you to come on here and discuss with me because in the past week um, we've all been ex- experiencing all of these different details unfolding about a rapper called Megan the Stallion um, from Houston, Texas. The Stallion. The Stallion with two E's. Um, and essentially her very, very terrible recording contract, um, the details of which have been spilling onto the timeline um, across the past few days. So I thought I'd just run through a brief timeline of what's been going on and then we'll talk about it. Um, so on the 1st of March, uh, Megan went on her Instagram live and she stated that she'd been prevented from releasing music. Um, so... Megan was originally signed in February 2018 to a label called 1501 Certified Entertainment. 
And she later signed with Rock Nation Management, owned by Jay-Z, um, in September 2019. Um, so what she explained on her Instagram Live video is that uh, lawyers from Rock Nation, or lawyers that she'd gotten since signing with Rock Nation, had had a look at her contract with 1501 and had found um, issues, quite significant issues in there, that um, they thought Megan needed to address and renegotiate. And according to Megan, as soon as she sort of said, to 1501 that she wanted to renegotiate the terms of her contract then all the problems started and they actually prevented her from releasing music she'd originally been scheduled to release her debut album on the 6th of march so friday the 6th of march um but the label her 1501 label had prevented that um a few days passed and Complex, uh, Sean Sotaro from Complex wrote a very detailed in-depth article on the 4th of March um, that explained that the day before that, on the 3rd of March, a Harris County, Texas district judge had given Megan a temporary restraining order, allowing her to continue to release music and prevent her label from blocking her album release um, on the Friday, the 6th of March. The following day, an emergency motion was filed by Carl Crawford, who is the head of 15 one Entertainment to dissolve the order. The following day, um, another Texas district court judge denied that motion. Megan's lawsuit stated that she wants the termination of her 1501 contract as it doesn't conform to industry standards. Um, Complex actually obtained a copy of the contract and, uh, and the terms. Megan's contract states that 1501 owns from the inception of the contract, each and every master recording. So the actual words say, to the extent that artists, so Megan, may be found to be the owner or author of any master recording, Megan hereby irrevocably assigns to 1501 Entertainment all of her rights in such master recording. So another additional term in the contract stated that the label will take half of her publishing, so an undivided 50% interest to each composition and puts itself in charge of administra administra administering it as well. And there's another clause where Megan can be fined if she's late to publicity sessions, recording sessions or appearances. And Complex was told that these terms had actually been exercised. And the real crazy part, and I think this is the part that everyone on Twitter was really shocked by, is that the label will get 30% of all live performance money um, generated by Megan, but the, all of the expenses from the concerts come from Megan's share. And on top of that, um, Megan is required to pay for all of the costs of producing her songs. So the engineer costs, um, the costs of features, basically Megan pockets, uh, Megan pockets money only after those things have been paid. And allegedly for two years, 1501 Entertainment have been collecting Megan's money and she hasn't been paid. Um, and they haven't been paying her or submitting statements to her. So Addy, <laughs> I wanted to get your ideas on whether you think that's a good contract and um, yeah, just your thoughts when you found out that Megan was working under this kind of contract. Yeah, honestly, I think with these things, it's, um, it's difficult not to be led by what you know. Mm. Um, so the kind of thoughts that I had when I first heard Megan's side, I knew would probably change over time. I knew that there'll be more details released. I knew that um, 1501 would come out with their own side of the story and then 
there'd probably be like a whole third side to the story, which mm. is the actual truth. Mm. Um, so yeah, I had to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt, but honestly and truly, like it is one of the worst deals that I've <laughs> personally seen. Um, or that has been made public that I've come across. I think the bit that really kind of got to me was the fact that all of these costs, which can end up being quite extortionate, mm. fall on Megan. Mm. As someone that is a young up and coming artist, like, yes, the guy Carl from 1501, you know, stated that Megan was like maybe 22, 23 and not 20, like she said she was or whatever. Mm. But still, she's still a very young artist. And not just a young artist, but someone that's very new in the industry. Like she's been rapping for like fun up until that point. There was no like contracts in place. Her mum was a manager, but there were no big corporates or labels involved. So things were very different. And it's almost like 1501 through Carl and like Jay Prince, who have a bit more experience in the entertainment space, kind of exploited that. Mm. Um, I think the thing that also shocked me as well was now that or following Complex's release of like these these terms and like the details of them, it kind of like invalidates what Carl said. Mm. Um, either Carl was lying or he wasn't aware of the actual terms of the contract, which again begs the question as to why <laughs> why he's allowing his um, company or anyone from his company to negotiate terms like that for artists that he pretends or you know claims to care about. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. And I think another thing that I was really sort of confused about is how people were saying, including quite prominent people in like the entertainment and creative space, um, Jamila Jamil was one of them, saying that artist contracts are deliberately written in ways that they can't understand them. And I find that to be just an interesting concept if it is true that, you know, you're... I mean, I think I'm also thinking about this Breakfast Club interview I saw with a, another rapper called Blueface, where he had no idea what was actually in his contract. Mm -hmm. He and I think sometimes there can be this this sort of predatory practice amongst, um, like you said, experienced people in the industry who know that young artists who up until that point haven't really been paid, who maybe have been paying out of their own pocket so far that they are eager to get that support and that structure that you get from a label but what they don't realize is that you could potentially be signing away your actual art your mm. creative image like the what you brought to the table when you got signed you could you could lose um for the sake of being signed and i was really surprised to I was surprised and sad because I'm a huge fan of Megan. So it was really, um, it was really sad to see that she was going through all of this. And on the subject of Jay Prince, um, because he's got a stake in 1501 Entertainment, he was actually um, named in Megan's lawsuit and completely refuted her claims. So a back some background on Jay Prince. Um, he is a music executive, promoter, and CEO of Houston-based Rap-A-Lot. Um, some random trivia is that he currently manages boxer and Andre Ward and previously Floyd Mayweather Jr. Uh, he's been working in rap for 35 years, 
And um, in 2010, he was honored alongside Master, Pre Master P, <laughs> Jermaine Dupree, Timberland, and Slick Rick at the VH1 7th Annual Hip Hop Awards for his creative contributions and philanthropic ventures. And another funny piece of trivia is that in 2015, he released a diss track called Courtesy Call in response to drama um, with Young Money artist Drake. And in that track, he disses Diddy and Birdman. Um, just some fun information about Jay Prince. So on Thursday, the 5th of March, Jay Prince said basically that the deal that Megan had signed was good. And um, one really interesting thing that he said was that anybody in the industry would say a deal where it's 60-40, so the label gets 60% and the artist get 40, gets 40% is a good deal. And I was really surprised to see that that is supposedly the industry standard, especially when um, Megan's lawsuit specifically states that, that those clauses were not up to the industry standard. So I was wondering, Aji, because you are involved so heavily in the creative industry and in the creative sphere, is it normal that you would, as a creative or as the person creating the art, that you would only get 40% stake of the revenue generated from it? Yeah, so just, I guess, to, like, disclaim, I can only go based off what I've seen so far in my, um, like, relatively, like, limited experience in, in these spaces. Um, but looking at it more widely than just the, the music space, when it comes to any sort of split from what I've seen personally, I don't see anything more than, like, 25% on a, like, day-to-day -day basis. Really? Um, there might be certain bits that are, like, split in a different way, but... 60% to me is is, is extortionate. Mm. Um, I think for there to be 60%, it has to like cover enough for it to make sense. The one kind of caveat I'd say to that is that when it comes to like 360 contracts, mm. where the label is doing more than just like managing the artist, they're kind of providing the whole package, then it may be more than 25%. It may go as high as like 40, 50 or 50, 50 split, but... 60 for the label to claim that it's industry standard they've clearly picked and choose picked and chosen um contracts that may have been agreed in similar circumstances where the artist ne didn't necessarily like understand the implications of signing it mm -hmm. and they've chosen that to just kind of like back up what they're trying to say or what they're trying to prove it doesn't mean that it's industry standard or it should be yeah and it's interesting because i was over the past few um over the past few weeks there's been lots of different stories about artists um who have been working under bad contracts or only realized after the fact that they were under a bad contract and there was a twitter thread that was referencing what happened to Megan and saying you know artists who've had the worst recording contracts mentioned in there were TLC um who that the iconic R&B group um, basically got completely done by their label. And Kellis, or sorry, Kellis um, of Milkshake fame. So she'd originally signed with Neptune, so that's with Pharrell. She originally thought everything was going to be split 333333. 33, 33, 33. Um, and then she says she was basically completely lied to by the label, management, lawyers, and everyone. Um, and she says that all of her publishing was stolen. And she says that she actually didn't make any money from her the music that was being released. So, and she said at the time it was okay, but, well, she thought it was okay because she felt like she was getting money. Like she didn't feel poor, but mm -hmm. when she actually looked closely, she was like, 
what the hell? <laughs> she wasn't getting nearly what she should be. And the fact that Khalees as well mentioned this concept of the label lawyers tricking her, I thought it would be interesting to talk about um, this sort of... Do you think it's it should be expected that when you have a lawyer that they are going to protect you and look out for your rights? Or do you think these artists are sort of doing themselves a disservice by just relying on the label, the labels lawyers that are provided to them? So I think here it's probably useful to kind of stress that there is a difference in the way that contracts are approached here in the UK and mm. from, from what I've seen, how they seem to be being approached in the US and in the various states. In the UK, there's an explicit requirement that anything that can be seen as um, a bad bargain or unconscionable, like you're supposed to like bring it to the attention of the person signing the contract. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if there's an equivalent provision in or a requirement um, in whichever kind of legal like jurisdiction. Texas, that, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that the Megan, Megan's contract was signed in. But um, the kind of impression I get is that there isn't. And for that reason, the label lawyers, in their minds, they're not seeing themselves as doing anything wrong by not explicitly letting, um, you know, Megan know or letting any of the artists know what the consequences of signing certain things or signing or agreeing to certain clauses would be. Um, the other thing to kind of bear in mind as well is that in this case, there seems to be a huge like conflict of interest mm -hmm. that, again, would not run in the UK. Um, you have to act in the best interest of your client. That's like drilled into us from even before you go to law school, like from the point at which you talk, touch any sort of law book, they will drill into you that you have to act in the best interest of the client, et cetera, et cetera. So there wouldn't be a situation so explicitly where it, it seems that the a lawyer who's like affiliated to the label is actually indirectly acting on behalf of the label. Yeah. So it's either you're you're the label's lawyer or you are the person signing the contract's lawyer. Exactly. You can't be both people's exactly. lawyers. Exactly. The there needs time. to be some yeah. level of independence. Yeah. Well the the independence thing is a is a huge thing. And so just to give some context, Aji is a qualified trained solicitor and I'm currently on my way to becoming a qualified trained barrister. But both professions, they're both lawyers, both a type of lawyer in the UK, but with barristers, we are specifically required in our code of conduct to act with independence and our only focus should be our client. So it was crazy to me to see how many of these artists are just using the label's lawyers and just presuming that because it's a lawyer that they're going to end up having someone that's going to fight in their corner. And to think that it's hit artists as big as Lil Wayne just relying on what's being said to them by the label. I think maybe there needs to be a sort of, you know, what I've always seen as someone growing up absorbing pretty much every facet of hip hop culture and R&B culture and being someone that's wanted to be a lawyer is you, you see when artists get signed, like you see them like with big wads of cash or like their new label chain. Like 
this the whole day before we recorded this podcast episode, I keep thinking about this line in Megan's song Hot Girl that she released just after she signed with 1501. And she starts a song by saying, I got that 1501 chain around my neck and now it's lit. And that's like her tag. Like it was just all about the fact that she's signed by the label, she's got mm -hmm. the chain. Like when the city girls got signed, it was because they now they got the quality control chain. It's almost like because another concept I think is important that we highlight is the, uh, the concept of an, ad an advance. Mm. So what a lot of artists get upon signing is a big um, sort of payout. But what they don't then realize is that you are required to work that money back. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you owe it. Mm -hmm. So I think it, there's this idea that you go to the label and now all of your you know, everything is sorted now, you're signed. Like, it used to be... Do you remember when artists used to just be on SoundCloud trying to get attention to get signed? Mm -hmm. And that was an artist's aim. But these days, it's so many artists are like, listen, being signed is not hot. It's not the way... It's not this amazing thing you might think it, it would be. And I keep thinking about just looking at other people in the female rap space. Um, Malibu Mitch and Asian Doll are two artists that... Um, both got signed. Um, Malibu Mitch signed to Atlantic and Asian Doll was signed to Gucci Mane's, Gucci Mane's label. I cannot remember what it is. Um, but basically, both of them ended up hating their deals and being prevented from releasing music. And this is, I think it's really important that people pay attention to the fact that these labels are businesses with their own commercial interests and you as an artist are an asset to them. So if they're going to contract with you, they're gonna put the business first. So I think artists should start thinking about themselves as businesses and in that way, have a bit more agency over what it is they want to agree to and where they want themselves, the artist, the business to be in the future. And, um, so I thought there was two really interesting things that, I mean, I say everything in law is really interesting because I'm a nerd, but um, I thought it was interesting if we talked about in England, whether the law protects you from signing or making or agreeing into a bad deal. Um, and so let's say I agree, you know, I enter into a contract and then I find out that the contract I've entered to really sucks and my terms are rubbish, but my friend who signed a contract with say the same company has a better one. Can I go to the court and be like, excuse me, they gave me a bad deal? Yeah, so I think from what I've seen, um, the courts are kind of starting to push back on allowing people to kind of get out of contracts. The whole, the reason for allowing it is generally you know, centered around what they call unconscionability. Mm. Um, the threshold for that now is so, so high. Like the principle of like caveat emptor, buyer beware, like you can't get out of a contract just because it's, it's a bad bargain. Mm. Um, that is taking complete precedence at the moment and mm. has been for some time. Um, the exceptions to that is and the court will always like look at you know reasonable t reasonableness tests and mm. so on and so forth. Is when things get to that level at which no person with all the facts would have agreed to that. When it becomes certain clauses become you know penalties or certain clauses become like I said unconscionable, um, that's when the courts will kind of step in. Um, kind of related to that is you 
if you were induced to enter a contract and you weren't given all the facts or you were given false facts, mm. then there may be grounds for rescinding that contract. So mm -hmm. they call it misrepresentation. That's one of the ones that is sometimes you know relied upon and is um, you know quite quite successful in the UK actually mm. or in um, England and Wales. Um, so there are like a set number of reasons for allowing um, a contract to be rescinded, but if you don't fall into one of those camps, You're you've got no chance. Basically. And I think it's important just to break down what in English law, what a contract is made up um, of. And every law student um, that hears this is going to roll their eyes because it's drilled into us. But a contract is made up of an offer. So that's, you know, what someone says. So, you know, I say to Aji, I'll mow your lawn for £20. Um, that whole concept of the offer... Um, it's only when it's only when Aji has said, "Yep, I agree to the terms. You can mow my lawn on Monday for twenty pounds," and that's now once he's agreed that to me and communicated that to me, that's called acceptance. The next thing the law requires is consideration, which is a whole area of law in and, in and of itself, but essentially the valuable thing. So if I'm mowing the lawn. Um, I should get something back. So whether that's the 20 pounds in this example, or it could even be that Aji's got a ticket to a Megan Thee Stallion concert and I really want it. But if we've agreed it, then that's the agreed not, not consideration. Anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going. Nah, I'm but, good as well. All right. And then the last thing, and this is a really important thing, is an intention to create legal relations. So the intention to create legal relations is that between the two parties, there was an intention that you were entering into a legally binding agreement. And there's a lot of very interesting cases of, for example, parents um, trying to sue their kids, um, saying that they were under a legal contract. But the law has basically looked at different types of relationships and established whether or not you can assume there's an intention to create legal relations. So, for example, two friends agreeing to, you know, someone agreeing to pick you up um, at the station isn't really intention to create legal relations. But if my friend owns a car service company and I have asked for one of his cars to come and pick me up, then I'm probably, that the court's going to look at that and say, yeah, there's an intention to create legal relations there. So I think these concepts are important. They are difficult. And it goes down to why you should have legal representation that's definitely on your side. And I think something that people should be comfortable with and start getting comfortable with if they're not already is interviewing your lawyers. You know, actually take time to get to know this person or maybe if it's a sort of firm, get to know the firm. Because I promise you, and Adi, hopefully maybe you could shed light on this. Whenever it's big businesses, like big companies, law firms will go out of their way to solicit that business. I mean, it's in the name, solicitor. You know, they will go out of the way to show that they are going to, they're the best, they're compassionate, they're caring, they're, they've got your business interest at heart. And would you say that even on an individual level, if you're a small creative or any sort of person, that you should also take that time to make sure that your people, your legal people are the right people? Definitely. Like, there has to be a good fit. And I think it's also kind of incumbent on the lawyer as well if you don't have that expertise and you can't represent your client as well as you should be able to don't take the work mm. I think there's um, a temptation um, particularly amongst 
um, you know, law firms that are maybe like struggling or lawyers that are struggling to try and pick up any work they can get. Um, all that does is opens you up to the risk of things going wrong and then you um, being left exposed. So I definitely agree that it's on the the creative or on whoever it is to try and make sure that the, the person that is actually representing them is the best person for that particular job. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not a good lawyer. It just may mean that for that particular job, they're not the best placed person to do it. Mm. And it's also on the lawyer as well to only solicit work that they are you know, qualified to do, that they can do in such a way that will represent the client in the best way. Thank you. Um, so before we wrap up, I just wanted to make people aware. Um, so there are two pieces of legislation um, that do sort of help you if you are in like a really bad contractual situation where your contract terms are unfair or they um, unfairly prejudice you. So the Consumer Rights Act 2015 is there for consumers. So that's anything where you as an individual are buying um, something um, as a consumer, you know, like a consumer of a product. Um, and that contains terms that are there to protect you and businesses are aware of this and should be, you know, even if it's something as simple as a phone contract, it should be drafted in a way that's compliant with that legislation. And secondly, the Unfair Contra Contract Terms Act 1977, which is more geared um, not for contracts with individuals, it's for contracts made in the course of business. And it doesn't include contracts of employment, contracts concerning interest in land and real property, or contracts relating to intellectual property rights. So creatives should be careful and aware of whether UCTA um, refers and applies to them. Okay, so thank you so much, Aji. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to just, so where can people find you? So people online, where should they go? So before I give my details, I just want to like disclaim that this was not legal advice. I don't want the SRA coming for me. Blah, oh, blah, blah. yes, this isn't legal advice. Um, yeah, so if you do want actual legal advice, um, probably best to email. So I think Blessing will leave it in the comment section or whatever it is, but contact at com. Um, I do take kind of like direct instructions from, you know, creatives, from startups and small businesses. That's kind of what I'm specialized in from a legal perspective. Um, outside of that, if you're interested in, you know, my business ventures, um, M-I-A-X-L-D-N on all social media platforms. Um, the Law Collective, if you are a young, you know, lawyer or a student interested in getting involved or connecting with us. We are on Twitter at Collective Law. We're on LinkedIn at The Law Collective. And there's also a Facebook group, um, which is where the students and the lawyers connect. And if you search TLC TC, you'll find that. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I've just really enjoyed having you on for this episode. There's very few people I know that I can have a conversation about Megan the Stallion and contract law. So thank you so much. Um, and I had a question for all of the listeners. So have you ever signed a bad contract using the hashtag legal tea on all platforms? Let me know. And that's even if it's a bad tenancy agreement or a bad phone contract, whatever it was, have you ever signed a bad contract? Hashtag legal tea. Um, I'll catch you guys in the next episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Um, peace out. Bye. <laughs>